Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, art historian Jeffrey Say explores one of the most important phases in the development of Singapore's modern art history, the 1950s to the 1970s. This period saw the emergence of distinctive movements like the Nanyang style, visual imagery that drew from the lives and struggles of the common people, and the first sculpture show in Singapore. Now, today's um, lecture, uh, I suppose it's quite an ambitious one, you know, because um, I'm covering about three decades, right? And uh, I suppose those uh, three decades, the 1950s to 1970s, they are some of the most, uh, uh, I would say, exciting, right, uh, period in the history of Singapore art. Okay, but um, now, can I have a show of hands? How many of you have been to the DBS Singapore Gallery? Oh, of course, the docents have, right? They have to. Okay, I can see, uh, you know, um, I would say two-thirds of you, right? Um, I suppose for those who have not, because um, I'm asking because, um, you know, I'm showing some examples, okay, from the, uh, the, 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 the collection itself. Um, and uh, for those who have not been, well, it's okay, after the talk, there's still a bit of time or you can come back another day. I think um, what I'm showing you on the slides um, really would do no justice to the actual... You know, there's nothing like a first-hand encounter, right, with the actual work of art, right? Where you can see, uh, you know, subtleties and nuances where, you know, you, you can't really uh, discern from, from the slides themselves, right? So I suppose hopefully this lecture will inspire you to, you know, um, you know look at those works more closely. Um, well, today's uh, lecture, I mean, it's entitled Story, right? I suppose story is like, you know, a grand narrative. It's like, Gombrich's story of art, but I suppose what I have today is only one and a half hours. So I'm going to talk instead about stories of art, right? Stories. And, um, you know, talking about key moments in, um, you know, the history of Singapore art, right? Uh, highlighting some of the key developments, right? The major artists, um, you know, and, and of course, works of art. Okay, I'm going to start, uh, I suppose, with a couple of quotes. Okay, and this, sorry, it's a bit worthy. I mean, you know, my first uh, few slides, you know, are, are quite, uh, you know, it's heavy on words, but later on you'll, you'll see, of course, works of art. But these quotes are interesting, right? I mean, um, you know, geez, what, um, you know, both of these quotes are trying to say is, uh, you know, in the 50s, there was really a vibrant, you know, Singapore had a very vibrant art scene. You know, I mean, I mean you know, at that time, I mean, we are talking about, you know, I mean, some people have spoken about Singapore as a cultural desert, right? That was in the 80s, but in fact, already in the maybe 40s or, you know, early in the 20th century, people have been talking about Singapore as, an, as a cultural desert. I mean, it was suc successful economically, but, you know, culturally, it was quite dry. But so, you know, so what this quote is alluding to is the fact that, uh, you know, in the 50s, right, there was already a kind of vibrant, culturally vibrant art scene. And... Um, so it says here, you know, in, I mean, the first quote probably was a, is a reference to a certain exhibition. And in that exhibition, there are 160 pictures, right? 160 pictures. And, um, and the artists who participated in that exhibition, you know, uh, came from a variety of uh, ethnic groups. You know, you have Malay, Indian, I suppose, Chinese artists. You know, we talk about today's art scene has been vibrant, but at that time in the 50s, 
right? You already have such a vibrant art. And, and in the second quote, right, you will, I mean, it makes the point that in the first eight weeks of 1955 alone, okay, there have been seven exhibitions. So imagine within a span of eight weeks, okay, there have been seven exhibitions, um, six public lectures. Wow. <laughs> I mean, we don't organize that many lectures also, you know, even today. And also, you know, it also highlights the work done by various uh, uh, art groups, like, of course, the Singapore Art Society, right, uh, which I'll talk about briefly later. Okay, and of course, the Singapore Artists. Now, Singapore Artists is like an art magazine, okay? It has long since been, uh, you know, defunct, right? Okay, so, I mean, today, even today, we don't even have an art magazine dedicated to Singapore art, right? Sadly speaking. Okay, I think, um, you know, I suppose it's important to give you some uh, kind of um, background, okay, before we, you know, look at the, talk about the artists and, and look at the works, uh, per se. And, um, you know, some of the key points, right, um, during this uh, period of art history, right? I suppose the first one that we are interested in and that's still being debated today is the notion of the modern Okay, so during this period, there's the emergence of the modern. But what exactly the modern is, right, is still being discussed and debated. Okay, and I'm just going to briefly discuss that uh, in a while. And also, I think it was a, a period of experimentation and innovation. I think this, um, you know, will be borne out when you look at some of the works later on. Okay, and I, I think this is what makes uh, our art distinctive from um, those in the region and even those from the West, right? Is this, uh, uh, you know, spirit of experimentation that led to the creation of very unique works of art. And, um, of course, we also have different modes of representation. So in this, uh, in this talk, okay, you'll, you'll come across, for example, the Nanyang movement, okay, which was um, more focused on, um, you know, the landscape and its people. And then, of course, you have the social realist movement, Okay, which was very much focused on the figurative. Okay, and then uh, lastly, you have uh, formalism, right? Um, meaning to say, artists were interested in uh, you know uh, abstract art, art kind of art for art's sake. And also in this period, we see the proliferation of uh, art societies and groups. Okay, there have been quite a number. I mean, I, I suppose at no point in history do you have so many of these you know uh, art societies emerging or operating at the same time. And of course, when we talk about art of this period, right, it was really a tumultuous period, okay, especially the 50s, right? And of, of course, also to some extent, the 60s. And then, um, you know, uh, because of the, the fight for independence and, uh, and also anti-colonial kind of uh, uh, activities. And then in the 70s, of course, we have, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, this uh, drive towards uh, nation building as well. So all these affected uh, art, or the development of art to one extent or another. Okay, and lastly, uh, there's also the search for identities, right? And, uh, you know, you, you have artists, for example, searching for a kind of uh, regional identity, okay? For example, the Nanyang group of artists. And then you, you have other artists who was, um, you know, in Singapore kind of um, strove towards independence. Okay, they were searching for a kind of um, uh, national identity, right? Um, you know, a Malayan identity. Okay, so... This will all be discussed uh, briefly, right, in the course of this, uh, this talk. All right, maybe now I'll just briefly discuss, you know, this uh, kind of, you know, the notion of the modern. I mean, when you talk about modern or modern art, 
right? In the Western context, okay, modern art refers to art that has departed from tradition or traditional art. And in the West, traditional art, okay, uh, is taken to refer to, uh, for example, you know, art of the Renaissance or, or academic realism. Okay, so Western artists from the Impressionist period onwards, okay, up to maybe the, you know, 30, 40 years of the 20th century. Okay, they, in a sense, they rebelled against this tradition, right? Um, they, uh, they kind of um, uh, fostered um, innovation, right, in art, art making. That's why you have all the isms in the early 20th century, right? Okay, so it was uh, really a rebellion against, um, you know, um, academic art, against uh, even the use of, for example, uh, perspective, one-point pers perspective in art. Now, in uh, Singapore and in Southeast Asia, I suppose the word modern uh, perhaps takes on a, a different... I mean, it has the same meaning in the sense that modern art, but the conditions which led to the emergence of modern were probably quite different from those in the West. Okay, I think that's important to, to note. All right? But the kind of um, spirit of innovation, the notion of progress and all that, um, I suppose uh, you know, they, it's still the same as those you know, that the Western artists were developing. So in Singapore, I mean, the, the word modern, for example, um, you know, refers to the point, okay, the period when, uh, you know, the, the environment stimulations and innovative efforts came into the right mix, okay, to bring forth a distinctive flourishing of artistic innovation. Okay, and that, uh, you know, this, this was, um, in a sense, can be traced back or at least, uh, you know, a couple of historians like uh, T.K. Sawapati trace this back, okay, um, to the 1950s with the Nanyang movement. And we are going to look at that uh, later on. You know, I mean, the Nanyang movement have been, has, has been termed a kind of precocious moment, right? A precocious moment in, in uh, you know, Singapore history. All right, so, so that's, the, um, you know, one idea that we can associate with the modern or the new. And then, uh, of course, um, you know, if you look at the second point, modern is also used um, by, for example, the modern art society. It's a, a Western concept, all right? If you look at the second point, the, the term modern here is, um, in a sense, being used, um, in a sense, to refer to uh, a kind of art for art's sake approach, right, towards art making. Okay, meaning to say that, um, you know, it, it uh, makes references to the West, abstract art, for example, which, um, you know, developed in the West, right? But in the Singapore context, again, um, modern art here, right, as um, kind of advocated by the modern art society, okay, was seen as a departure from the Nanyang movement itself. Okay, that's quite ironic because we think of the Nanyang movement as, uh, you know, uh, really the, the beginnings of modern art in Singapore. But the modern art society, okay, saw what they were doing, in, in a sense, as a departure from the Nanyang school itself, okay, the Nanyang movement itself. And also a departure from the social realist movement, okay, which uh, in fact developed in the 1950s, right? Because the modern society only uh, kind of um, uh, developed in the 1960s and also the 1970s. But we'll talk about all this again um, in the course of this, this talk. So this is what Ho Ho Ying, who was the, um, really the president of the uh, modern art society. Okay, this is uh, um, his quote about the need to absorb the spirit of modernism. 
and I think the, the the key kind of words here, you know, he used is I mean, if you look at the words they are, they, have, they are they are recurring in this quote, is the word new. Okay, new concepts. Okay, there was search for new concepts, new methodologies, right? New principles, and I suppose new approaches to making art. Right? And and that can all be seen in this um, you know, art for art's sake, okay, a kind of uh, abstract art, um, you know, approach. And, uh, and he goes on to argue that, you know, it's only when we create something new like this, can it lead to a kind of a distinctive, right, um, uh, uh, Singapore identity, right, in art. Okay, it's only then that a kind of a distinctive Singapore culture can emerge. So I suppose, you, you know, in this period, you see, a, um, you know, quite a lot of uh, rhetoric happening as well, okay, um, uh, positionings, you know, I mean, art societies taking different positions and trying to position themselves as, you know, as the avant-garde, I suppose. Uh, okay, I, I think we have to, you know, there's no nowhere better to start than with the Nanyang movement. Okay, uh, I think this, the Nanyang movement, I think many of you are, or, you know, are quite familiar right, with this term and also with the artists associated with, with this uh, movement. And I suppose it's probably the most debated and the most written about, uh, you know, art movement. Okay, I suppose in the, in, the, in the history of Singapore art. Okay, perhaps, I don't know, with the exception of maybe the artist village, I'm not sure. All right, but, uh, and, and also not only the most written about, but also the most uh, debated, okay, kind of um, period in Singapore's art history. And why, why is that? So why is there such a kind of controversy, okay, surrounding this uh, kind of movement or this group of artists? Okay, I think, um, you know, I mean, you, you have read about the Nanyang uh, group of artists and they have, been, um, they have been referred to as the Nanyang style, okay, or written about as, you know, the Nanyang style or the Nanyang school. Okay, I think um, perhaps... I think there are some problems with the use of uh, labels and and uh, you know and names and all that, and I'm, I don't know how accurate it is you know to refer to this um, group of artists you know as or this rather this period in art as a Nanyang style, because when you talk about style, it refers to a, a certain shared formal characteristics. Okay, I mean something some identifiable characteristics that you can recognize. Okay, when you look at the works of you know artists belonging to this movement or this school. Okay, but the fact is that if you look at the works of this group of artists, they are quite different. Okay, I mean, if you look at the work of Cheong Soo Ping, uh, Chin Chong Sui, right, Lim Hak Tai, Georgia Chen, okay, they all have different styles. But as I'll point out later on, okay, what they share is a, a certain type of characteristics, right? So I don't know, you know whether it's accurate at all to refer to this you grow artists as, you know, or, or this period as the Nanyang style. So I, I suppose we have to be quite careful with, you know, uh, in, in terms of how we use labels and names. So I prefer to use the, uh, refer to, to this group of artists as a Nanyang movement because it refers to a particular historical period, okay, the 1950s and to some extent the 1960s. And it really don't go beyond that, right, that period. Okay, so what is the Nanyang, right? I mean, the Nanyang, it says there's a Chinese name for the geographical region south of China, particularly Southeast Asia. Okay, and it was actually not, a, um, not something new. It was, it was already used by Chinese traders, okay, to refer, you know, when they were trading with Southeast Asia, to refer to this geographical region, 
okay, that was south of the mainland, which is China. And uh, of course, uh, later on, it also was used to refer to the large ethnic Chinese migrant population, right, uh, in this part of the region, right, particularly in, in Singapore and Malaysia. Now, how about the arts? In fact, uh, before it was, the term was used in the visual arts, it was actually used first in, in uh, literature or literary criticism, okay, where um, writers, okay, migrant writers, I mean, writers who have kind of settled and migrated here, okay, they, they urge their kind of fellow writers, you know, to focus on, on the subject matter, right, of this region, all right, in, in their writings, rather than, for example, referring back to the mainland. Okay, so there was a call for art, uh, uh, writers and later on artists, right, to paint the reality of the region, okay, rather than, you know, always, you know, uh, kind of uh, have a nostalgic kind of uh, look back, you know, um, at, at um, the mainland, which is China itself. Right? So, so that's how um, you know, the, the, the term Nanyang came into use. And uh, I suppose the art historian, um, I mean, I suppose this term was first, um, you know, the word Nanyang, in fact, okay, I don't know where, whether it was first used. I mean, we, we saw that it was probably, it was used right, um, uh, much earlier, but I suppose this Nanyang style in terms of the visual arts right, was um, kind of first developed um, by, you know, the eminent art historian T.K. Sapapati, right? When he actually curated an exhibition in 1979, right, on the Nanyang artists, okay, together with uh, Malay this uh, Malaysian artist called Reza Piadasa. Okay, I, I, um, I believe it was held in the uh, National Visual Art Gallery, the Balai, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but anyway, it was in 1979, right, when uh, this exhibition was held, and that's where they really formulated um, their, their theory on, right, on, on Nanyang art, okay, and, and their kind of position has, uh, has seldom been challenged, okay, but there, there have been people who, who, you know, who has challenged what, uh, what they have said and what they have written, and uh, I would like to encourage, and I always tell my students, you know, I mean, it's, you know, for example, when they're taking the course that, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of scope to challenge, you know, what, uh, you know, Sabapati and, you know, uh, Piyadasa, okay, had written about the Nanyang style, okay? Because I think they're, you know, I mean, they're, 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 what they say sometimes can be quite problematic, okay? Um, but in, in any case, I think what they say also makes a lot of sense as well. For example, uh, you know, Sabapati, uh, you know, believe that the Nanyang style is actually a synthesis, Right. So it's a synthesis of traditional Chinese ink painting, Western art, the School of Paris, and local subject matter. Now, to understand this, we have to um, you know, briefly go back to China, okay, um, to, the, to the May 4th movement, 1919. Okay, I mean, that whole movement was an attempt to modernize China. All right? And it's because of that movement, uh, Chinese artists went abroad okay, to study. Okay, and they went abroad to places like Paris. Okay, so, so they studied Western art there. And also, academies were set up in China okay, that taught Western art. So we have this group of Chinese artists, many of whom later came to Singapore, migrated to Singapore, who were schooled in both Western art okay, as well as Chinese ink painting. Okay, so the Western art we are referring to is often referred to as the School of Paris. Okay, now what is that, you know? 
Um, I suppose it refers to a style that developed uh, with the Impressionists okay, in the 19th century. Okay, so Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, and then you have um, Cubism, Fauvism, right? Okay, some of the movements in the early 20th century. Okay, all of which, in a sense, developed in, in Paris itself, right? And so, Sabapati was, uh, you know, his argument is that the Nanyang style, right, was a synthesis of, you know, um, you know, Chinese ink painting, okay, uh, Western art, okay, and local subject matter, okay, local subject matter. And, you know, it was actually Lim Hak Tai, right, who founded the, the Nanyang Academy of Fine Art, or NAFA, okay, who actually have already encouraged artists. He says, you know, you need to paint the reality of the Southern Seas. So when we talk about, you know, the Nanyang, I mean, the Nanyang movement, we can also talk about um, what you call the localness of the place, all right, where, you know, artists, you know, uh, were responding to their environment, right, to their surroundings. That's to say the local, the regional surroundings. Okay, so in a sense, by synthesizing these three elements, okay, artists were able to imbue a sense of local consciousness within their works. Okay, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Sabapati saw this as, saw this development as a kind of uh, a precocious moment in uh, Singapore's art history. Okay, and he believed that, um, you know, what they have developed, what these artists have, you know, created or developed what was something, you know, uh, new and innovative. Now, Piyadasa's uh, definition is that the Nanyang artist must be affiliated to Nafa. Now, that, that's quite problematic. And, and we know now that, you know, not all artists who practice, you know, uh, or who belong to this movement actually graduated uh, or was affiliated to the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts. And I think one common error that we make is that uh, it's, it's often mentioned that Liu Kang, okay, I think many of you are familiar with Liu Kang. It was written that he taught at NAFA, which he never did. Okay, there was no record of Liu Kang, okay, teaching at NAFA. Okay, he taught at Chinese high school. And I think maybe a couple of others, but not at NAFA, right? But all the other major artists, in fact, uh, Nanyang artists um, taught at NAFA. So I suppose it's a bit, um, you know, could be a bit problematic, right? Piyadasa's kind of definition. Okay, now, uh, again, to, to kind of um, talk more about what Sabapati said, I think it makes sense here in the sense that the Nanyang style or the Nanyang movement, I would say, right, uh, can be seen as um, a kind of shared attitude towards art making, right? So they shared certain attitudes, although their style may vary, okay, but they shared certain attitudes towards art making, right? Firstly, methods, processes and methods of work. Okay, all of them, I, I would say, were experimental, were innovative. And uh, they also responded to their surroundings. Okay, they, they painted what they saw, you know, in the region, right, here itself, right, kampongs, okay, the religious buildings like mosques and, and all that. And also the choice of subject matter. Okay, they, um, you know, they no longer look towards China, right, for subject matter, but they were painting uh, what they saw here or around the region. Okay, and also relationship to art traditions. Okay, this was what I, you know, kind of talked about in the earlier slide. Uh, art tradition, which is the Chinese ink tradition, as well as uh, Western art traditions. Okay, so I think these are some of the shared kind of uh, characteristics that you can identify within this movement. 
And that's what Lim Hak Tai was, you know, his, his quote there. No one can deny the fact that the fine art of Nan, Nanyang has its own distinctive traits. Yeah, I think that's a quite important point to note. Distinctive, right? What they have created is something quite distinctive. And it is located at the meeting point of East and West. So this is my own kind of, you know, having after kind of, um, you know, read through all this, you know, I've kind of distilled, distilled it into this, you know, this one or two sentences, right? Okay, so we can say that the Nanyang movement refers to a group of diasporic or migrant Chinese artists in both, schooled in both Chinese and Western art in search of a Southeast Asian aesthetic expression. It belonged to a particular historical period, that is the 1950s and to some extent the 1960s. So I, I have problems with, for example, people who say, oh, you know, artists are still painting in the Nanyang style today, right? But what exactly is the Nanyang style? So sometimes we use the term too loosely. Okay, I, I believe that it, it belonged to that, you know, particular historical period. And that's the moment in time where, you know, we can associate um, the Nanyang movement with. Okay, just to have a kind of visual to kind of demonstrate or illustrate what I, I've just spoken about. Okay, I mean, you know, in this painting, you know, a famous painting you can see up in the gallery, right, uh, by Liu Kang. You can see, you know, what I've mentioned about, you know, the kind of shared characteristics Okay, or the shared attitudes of the Nanyang artists. Okay, and um, here uh, he actually paints. It's actually a very interesting painting if you look at it. You can write a lot about it. For example, it's about an artist painting his fellow artists. I think that's another, that's an area which, you know, is interesting to look at. Maybe if you are a feminist, right? Or you may not be a feminist, okay? But you, you can uh, look at this work in terms, for example, of the male gaze. You know, I mean, this male gaze about the artist, you know, looking at the model, you know. And in fact, she's semi-nude. In fact, we have um, quite a number of examples, you know, written, written records of Liu Kang and, you know, Jian Chong Sui and other artists who, you know, in, the, in their writings refer to the bare-breasted Balinese woman. You know, so so there's kind of uh, exoticization taking place here as well. Okay, so you, you you can look at this work from a few angles, but I suppose what I want to point out is the the kind of you know Nanyang kind of characteristics, right? You see in this painting, All right? Um, I suppose uh, if you know Liu Kang's work, right? He was um, of course he was trained in China, okay, but he also uh, was exposed to Western art, right? Particularly, I would say, uh, fauvism, okay, to some extent also post-impressionism, right? So when you look at this picture, right, you, you, you'll notice, firstly, he's, um, you know, you see that, you know, it reminds you of a fauvist painting, right, a Matisse, for example, right, a Matisse, right? Because um, he uses a very simple colors and lines and shapes here in this painting, right? Now, in terms of um, the Chinese kind of... Um, Aesthetic sensibility is not so evident in this painting. It'll, it'll be evident in another painting, which I'm going to show you later on. Okay, but I think what Liu Kang has adapted here is also is the indigenous tradition, right? And in this case, is the technique of batik. Okay, the batik technique. Uh, of course, it's, it's oil on canvas. So where's the batik here? I mean, the, if you look at the works of the Nanyang artists, they, they are very interested in... Uh, in, 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 in batik itself, right? Not so much in the technique, all right, but in depicting it in, the, in their work. For example, there's, if you look at this work, there's quite a lot of emphasis on the, on the sarong, 
on the patterns of the sarong worn by the model. And then um, one very distinctive um, um, kind of characteristic or feature you'll see in Liu Kang's work is the white outline. I mean, it's, it's been said that this white outline okay, was really uh, inspired by the batik technique. Right? But uh, later on, I'm going to show you, you know, a, a work that um, you know, adapted the batik technique to create you know, a modern uh, work of art. So here, you know, I mean, this is, uh, I would say, a, a Nanyang work, a Nanyang painting. I mean, in a kind of a you know, typical kind of um, Nanyang um, style, if you like. Right, uh, combining both uh, you know Western and and you know local traditions, okay, synthesizing them, okay, and you know uh, with a local subject matter, okay. So there's a synthesis here of various elements, okay, to create this painting, okay. So in that sense, you know, it was a very innovative painting. And 1952, okay, um, four of these um, so-called um, Nanyang artists. Okay, went to Bali on a kind of a painting excursion. Right? It's called the Bali Trip of 1952. So you have uh, Liu Kang, Chen Chongsui, Chen Wenxi, and Chong Su Ping. I often, you know, sometimes uh, people are wondering what happened to Georgette Chen, right? Okay, you know, and, and they say all sorts of things like, you know, because she's a woman, you know, she was not invited to the trip. But the fact is that she only came to Singapore in 1954, if I'm not mistaken. So it's only after the Bali Trip. Okay, and why did they go? And again, you know, this here, like, you know, um, historians like Sabapati is saying that, you know, they were really following the footsteps of Gauguin, right? Paul Gauguin, who went to the South Seas, you know, which is really Tahiti, right? Okay, and, and painted, you know, uh, the, the Tahitian life and, you know, the, the woman and all that there. And also, um, you know, they were also following the footsteps of some of the early European artists who went to Bali. Okay, uh, most notably the Belgian artist Le Meilleur, right? Le Meilleur. And um, okay, in any case, they went in 1952. And again, it was said that they went in to search for a kind of a visual expression that is uniquely Southeast Asian. So perhaps. They were they traveled to Bali, yeah, to, to search for this kind of ex, you know this kind of regional expression, right? And also to to get some inspiration and to to look for some visual sources for their own work. And in fact, this exhibition has been again you know it's seen by art historians like Sabapati as an important exhibition. And he was saying that this was really the high point, all right? Okay, of, of Singapore's art history. It's, it's, a, it's a time when, you know, um, aesthetic quality, pictorial skill, you know, imaginative power all came together, right, in this exhibition. You know, so this exhibition was held one year later, in 1953. It's, uh, called the, it's sometimes called the Pictures of Bali or the Four Artists to Bali uh, exhibition. And, uh, I mean, this, this uh, is a photograph. It shows you... You know, I mean, it shows that, you know, there are quite a number of works. I can't remember how many works were exhibited, okay? Uh, but it's hung in a kind of a salon style, you can see there. And um, it, it drew quite a, a, a big crowd and uh, some prominent uh, figures. You see Michael Sullivan there, right? Mark, Michael Sullivan was the, I think he was the first lecturer in the then art history lecturer in the University of Malaya. And he became the, the curator of the uh, University of Malaya 
museum. So a very uh, prominent figure there, right? Michael Sullivan, his wife. So it's really this exhibition, you know, you know, that prompted you know, historians like Sabapati to say that what is shown here, you know, has, has really been crystallized, right, into the kind of a Nanyang style. Okay, I'm just going to highlight briefly some of the Nanyang artists and show you maybe one, just one of their works. Okay, and um, many of these works can be, um, can be seen in the gallery itself. All right, and um, this is a, a quote by Chong Su Ping. And, you know, when I look at, I mean, Chong Su Ping is today the most, among the Nanyang artists, I think he's the most celebrated. Partly it's because of the exposure that he received, I think, in the last seven, eight years. Okay, and also the art market also has, a, I think, has a, a big part to play in this. Okay, I mean, if you have to compare the works of Chong Su Ping 10 years ago and now, it's a world of difference, right? Okay, probably from four to five figures to maybe now seven figures. Okay, so all this, in a sense, catapulted him to be, I suppose, you know, the most celebrated artist in this, um, you know, group of you know, Nanyang artists. You know, but I, I think de deservedly so. I mean, if you look at, you know, um, Su Ping's work. Now here, I'm sorry, I'm using the Singapore Convention, you know. I'm referring to, to, to them by their given names, right? Normally in art history, you refer to them as, you know, by their surname, like Cheong, right? But it's a bit awkward saying Cheong, right? So I'm just saying Su Ping. And that's how it's written as well. Okay, anyway, um, Su Ping, to, I mean, to me, he's a tireless experimenter. I mean, he's the most experimental, right, among the group of Nanyang artists. I mean, not only experimental, but I think, you know, extremely prolific. Right. And um, he traveled, in fact, to, um, to Europe, right, to London in the 1960s, where, um, you know, his works were well received. Okay. And uh, you know, so, so among the, this group of artists, he was the one who also received the most, I would say, uh, international exposure. All right. Okay. So uh, it's, it's uh, really appropriate where he used the term experimented because that's what he was. Right? He was a tireless experimenter. And again, you know, he said that, well, you know, in this, he was fascinated by, of course, you know, referring to the Bali trip, by the scenery and by the Balinese woman, right? Okay, and I discovered that Balinese women are the ideal subject for me. Okay, I think some of you have, you know, have seen this work up in the gallery. And uh, I would say that uh, maybe most of you actually own this work. Do you believe it? It's on your $50 note, right? You take it out. Okay, you look at it, it's there. And I think that's what also makes this work famous. It's called Drying Salted Fish. And I, I think, I, I'm, you know, I use this work also to, to kind of illustrate um, his, I mean, Suping's, you know, kind of uh, experimental spirit. Again, you see, you know, I mean, he has done so many innovative works, okay? I mean, he has used Chinese ink on... You know, he has, he has used the hand scroll format, right? I mean, synthesizing the hand scroll format with, um, with uh, easel painting, right? He has mixed uh, Chinese ink with oil. Okay, and in this painting, right, if you look at the medium, it's Chinese ink and watercolor. And um, here, of course, the subject matter is local, right? So drying salted fish is an activity that um, was quite common at that time along the coastal areas of Singapore and Malaya. Okay, and uh, so you see, um, you know, that's, that's the central activity taking place here. You'll see a goat there, right, and all that. 
Okay, so that's so he, he has um, depicted a local subject matter, but in a kind of format that perhaps is a bit more Chinese. I mean, here you know he, he although is 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 um is cloth or, or canvas, right? But the format itself is like a hand scroll format. A hand scroll, you know, in, in, in Chinese painting you have the you know you have the hand scroll format. And I think here you you also see, at least in this painting, right, the, the, the Chinese aesthetic sensibility, right, more than the Western, you know, approach to painting. Alright, I think one uh feature you'll notice here are the intricacies of the line work. Okay, the intricacies of line work. And you, you can see the the intricacies of line work, for example, um, particularly in the, the detail of, of the foliage, right? The foreground, okay, the, the sarong worn by the woman. Okay, so here you can see, you know, um, you know, his um his masterful use of line as well here. Okay, which again um tells us that this group of artists were quite comfortable in both, you know, in both traditions, right? The Chinese tradition as well as as the Western tradition. And of course, he also developed a particular particular type of uh, or particular way of depicting, you know, um, you know, female figures. Okay, if you look at Su Ping's uh, figures, you know, they're often, uh, you know, um, shown in a certain way with a kind of uh, almond-shaped eyes and attenuated limbs, you know, right? So, so he has, in a in a sense, there's a particular stylization of the female figure, right? Okay, that he has created. And um, this is a quote by Dato, Dato Lo, uh, Lok Wan To. Of course, he's the founder of Kete organization. And one of the uh, great legendary patrons of the arts, right, in the 1950s and also the 1960s. Yeah, I think, I, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk on art funding these days, right? Okay, and, uh, you know, and about private philanthropy. Okay, and I've, 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 in fact, I've cited the example of uh, okay, Lok Wan To because... Not only him, but there were a few other people, okay, who developed that close relationship. Okay, this artist-patron relationship was something that that uh, I would say made the art scene thrive during that time. Okay, that and that we need now, you know, that kind of artist-patron relationship. Okay, so Lok Wan To had a particular relationship to um, you know the Nanyang artists, but in particular to to Chong Su Ping. Okay, but here he's talking about. Uh, Chen Wen-si. Again, I have to point out that um, all of these Nanyang artists had their training in China and in a particular academy, okay, either the Shanghai Academy of Fine Arts or the Xinhua Art Academy. Okay, and, that, and those Chinese academies, in fact, um, I mean, NAFA itself, Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts, was modeled on those academies. Here it talks about Chen Wen-si, about his, uh, that he's prolific in both um, Chinese ink painting, right? The use, he says, of swift, sure, and sentient lines, right? That's referring to the Chinese ink tradition. Okay, but he's also comfortable with, um, you know, he says here, we are also able to peer through that window which opens onto the Western world, right? So it's equally adept, right, in both Chinese ink as well as Western painting. Okay, of course, in some works, you, you'll see that, you know, he was able to achieve this synthesis between Chinese ink and Western painting, like uh, his famous painting called Herons. Okay, I, I I don't have it here, you know, with me, but okay, that that was really a, a very good example of how he was able to synthesize both traditions. But I think in this particular work, he has more affinity with uh, Western art, in particular with uh, Cubism. And um, 
And, and the, the, the cubist influence can be seen, for example, in the, the fragmentation, the fracturing of the, you know, the picture plane here, right? Uh, so much so that you know, this, um, the subjects are viewed from multiple viewpoints or angles, all right? So here, the subjects are actually some uh, kind of skeletal you know, displays that you see in the, the old Raffles um, you know, uh, um, Natural History Museum. I would say that although you know, Chen Wen-si was uh, very much familiar with the structure and format of Chinese painting, okay, here you can see that um, you know, he was also able to adapt right, uh, Western, especially you know, uh, Cubist painting you know, to, to, um, to create this, um, this particular work. And then move on to uh, Chen Chong-sui. All right, um, Chen Chong-sui, I think, um, Pat, does he still have the exhibition going on now, right? Yeah, all right. So he has an exhibition, right? there's an exhibition on Chen Chong-sui's work that is currently okay, showing. And Chen Chong-sui really was quite different from the other Nanyang artists. He represents the more uh, realist end of the spectrum, right? He was a realist, okay? He always argued that, Art must be communicative. Okay, it must convey truth, goodness, and beauty. Right? That is, you know, um, that's, that's what he thinks art should be. And uh, oh, it says here in the quote that art is part of life and cannot, cannot exist independently from real life. Okay, it must be object, objective. And this is what he says about Bali, right? He says, it's a woman's empire, right? And the robust beauty of Balinese woman, the pastoral scenery forms and excellent painting. So in this work, what he talked about, you know, earlier in, in, the, in, the, in the quote that I just showed you about, you know, how he was fascinated by um, a Balinese woman. Okay, and, um, and it can be best be shown or, or seen in this, uh, this particular painting. Right. Okay, here, I mean, he depicts uh, two women, right? Um, and um, he provides a kind of interesting contrast of the two women. Right, the one in the background, you know, she, she's kind of walking by, you know, with, um, you know, carrying some goods on her, on her head. Whereas the other one, he has, he has probably caught in a moment of, I don't know, contemplation, right? She looks contemplative, right? Uh, melancholic in, in, in some ways. Okay, but here I think he's also managed to cap, capture the robustness, okay, of, of the Balinese woman, right? Um, you know, with very precise lines and, and colors. And the uh, headdress, you know, of the woman and also the, um, the kind of, I don't know, the kind of cloth worn around her waist reinforce, right, the, the strength and, and vigor, right, of the female figure itself that we see there. Okay, so this is, um, again, um, Chen Chong-sui, you know, uses a local subject matter, right, Okay, but uh, he paints in a rather, you know, realistic fashion, right? Compared to the other artists like Liu Kang or even Chen Wen-si. Okay, talking about Liu Kang, while, while I say that, you know, uh, Su Ping is uh, probably the most celebrated, you know, kind of Nanyang artist, but Liu Kang, I think, is probably the most famous, you know? And I think maybe even more prominent than uh, uh, Chong Su Ping was in his time, right? Because Liu Kang, uh, you know, he... Uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a member of the Society of Chinese Artists. He was a founding member of the Singapore Art Society, right, in 1949, right? So he occupied, you know, a few kind of uh, prominent, I mean, he played an important pivotal role, right, in the art scene here. 
And this is an interesting quote by Liu Kang. He says that he paints with Western painting material and tools, but my style and substance are Chinese. And the realm of my painting is typically Oriental. I suppose you can substitute Oriental with, you know, Asian, right? Okay, it's typically Southeast Asian, or, right? Or local. And this work, you can see it being displayed, right? It's also another famous work, right? It's been turned into a stamp. Again, now, here you can really see the synthesis between Chinese uh, ink painting and Western art, right? Um, okay, in what way? Right, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, the obvious one, if you look at this, um, this, this painting, the use of colors and all that, um, you know, simple shapes and colors, again, shows us his influence from Western art, right? Okay, probably post-impressionism or fauvism. Okay, but I, th I think the Chinese influence is also quite pervasive in this painting, all right? And a lot of emphasis in this painting is given to the composition. So that's why when you look at this painting, it looks very serene, okay? Although there's, uh, you know, there a lot of activities uh, going on here, but it doesn't look like, you know, too crowded, okay? It doesn't look uh, too busy, right? It, it conveys a sense of, you know, calmness and serenity. I, I think it's, it's the way that he composed the picture, right, in this, in this work, right? And here he draws upon his training in Chinese art, right, draws upon Chinese tradition. Here you can see that he has uh, dispensed with one-point perspective. What it gives us here is a kind of um, multiple or moving perspective, okay, that you often see in Chinese art, okay, that, you know, our eyes have, have to move, you know, from one point to another, and uh, here you also see how he cleverly uses um, the bridge and also the river on the right, okay, uh, you know, as a kind of compositional device, okay, to lead our eye, you know, uh, to the row of houses, right, in the background. Okay, so he lets us uh, kind of wander or meander, right, much like Chinese painting, right, okay, you meander around the scene. Okay, and again, you know, how he carefully balances, you know, if you look at the bridge on the right and the river, you know, they kind of balance each other out. And also the people on the, the left and the boats on the right. And um, you, you'll see also the white outline, okay, that you saw in the earlier painting of um, the artist and his model. And Liu Kang has always been, uh, you know, I would call him a colorist. He's an excellent colorist, right? I, I think among all the Nanyang, right, uh, painters, he was, he was the one who really, um, you know, was uh, able to use colors to, to convey the kind of um, uh, joy, you know, and, you know, in, in his painting. And um, last one I'm going to highlight. I, I, I don't know, I'm a bit hesitant to place Georgia Chen as part of this group of Nanyang artists. Now, there's a doc, who has seen the docudrama of Georgia Chen, three-part docudrama? Okay, in fact, you can, uh, it's available in the National Gallery website. I believe. Okay, so you can still see that, um, you know, that three-part series. I, I've seen all, you know, all the three, three parts. Now, I'll come to that uh, later on, I mean, about Georgia Chen, you know, whether she can be labeled as a, a Nanyang artist, right? But again, another kind of uh, um, error is that she was born in France. She was not born in France. Okay, so research has, um, you know, shown that she's actually born in China. And she, she led quite a um, privileged life, right? She married uh, the Chinese foreign minister, but he died. Okay, but later on, too, I think, I think the, you know, the part of her life when she migrated here 
you know, first to Penang and to Singapore, uh, was a bit more tumultuous, a bit more tragic. You know, she divorced her second husband and then, and then you know, she, she later on spent a lot of years in the hospital before, right, she passed on. Uh, and, and she was, um, I think, among all the other, all the Nanyang artists, she was the one who was, who was really exposed most to Western art. Okay, that is because she spent a lot of time in France as well as in the, in the US, right? Where she enrolled in the Art Students League. Okay, so if you look at her paintings, right, it has a lot of affinity, right? I think more affinity with Western art than Chinese art. Okay, so in that respect, okay, because her work is not so much a synthesis of both Chinese and Western art, I, I don't know whether it's correct really to call her a Nanyang artist just because she depicts local subject matter. So maybe that's something, you know, for us to kind of reconsider. Anyway, that's my point, right? My kind of point of view. Okay, and not, you know, she's notable for um, painting still life, portraits, landscape, okay? rather than, uh, you know, nude Balinese woman, right? Okay, I mean, she didn't, she, I mean, she didn't make the Bali trip anyway. And she has a keen sensitivity to her subjects, all right? Especially portraits, right? She's an excellent portrait painter. Okay, and she painted many portraits of her first husband, Eugene. Um, her style is very much uh, expressionistic. I would say very much akin to um, Cezanne's style. Okay, if you know the post-impressionist pa uh, painter, Paul Cezanne. Okay, using a variety of brush, brush strokes and also um, colors, right, to convey uh, both form and texture. But I see Georgia Chen, okay, although one might argue whether she can be called a Nanyang artist, okay, I would see her, her contribution most in her role as educator. Okay, the rest, you know, like with the exception of Liu Kang, Cheng Chong Sui, Wen Si, you know, um, who else? Uh, Su Ping, they all taught in Nafa. So did Georgia Chen, but she taught the longest, 1954 to 1981. That's a long time, almost 27 years. And she has left, uh, you, know, and, you know, a lot of um, uh, indelible influence on her students. And one of her most famous students, of course, or her most famous one student is Ng Eng Ting, okay, whose books I'm going to show you later on. And that's what uh, Liu Kang was trying to, you know, to say about Georgia Chen here. Right, where she was able to transmit to her students for her fundamental knowledge and techniques. Now, let me show you just one of her works here. Now, at first glance, right, this work, uh, you, know, you know, immediately when you see it, you say, oh, it reminds you very much of uh, Paul Cezanne's still life. Okay, definitely. I mean, I can't blame you for, for saying that, right? In terms of the kind of the, the, the heavy brush strokes, okay, um, the, the, um, the kind of um, the textures, Right, uh, of the painting. But I think what's interesting also is here, if you look at the, the shades of grey, right, the, the grey areas in this painting, right, okay, it reminds you very much of also of Chinese ink painting, right, the vague washers that artists use, right, in their paintings, right. Okay, so I don't know whether that was deliberate. And also, when you look at this painting, it's also she adds, for example, on the upper left, a kind of incense burner, if I'm not mistaken, right, it looks like an very much to me like an incense burner, right? Okay, so here you can see that she has added, you know, some, I suppose, Asian elements into the painting as well, right? Although in, in terms of style, it's very much um, akin or similar to the style of 
the the post impressionist artist like Cezanne, in terms of her using, you know, uh, heavy brush strokes and and colors, right, to convey textures and form. And also the fruits are also very much, uh, uh, you know, localized here. I mean, you know, she has painted not only apples and oranges, but fruits like rambutans and all that. Okay, let me move on. Okay, as I mentioned uh, earlier in my earlier slide, right, that you know this uh, period was a you know a period where art societies and art groups proliferated, and that's going to be picked up by um, you know my good friend Eugene. All right, next uh, on the thirteenth, right, thirteenth August, Eugene is a senior curator at the National Gallery. Right, he's going to talk um, uh, specifically about societies. Okay, but here I'm just going to show you a snapshot of um, some of the societies. Okay, um, that were kind of you know formed during that period. Okay, you have the Singapore Society that was formed in 1949. Okay, um, among the the founding members, so as I mentioned, Liu Kang and uh, people like Richard Walker. Okay, I mentioned I'll talk about Richard Walker again briefly later on. And then you have the Nanyang Art Movement. 1950s, the Chinese middle school's graduates of 1953 Arts Association. That association uh, kind of drew from uh, drew students from the various um, Chinese middle schools in Singapore, and of course it has some, I would say, uh, sympathies. Okay, with uh, with the the kind of leftist um, elements, okay, that were operating in Singapore at that time, right in the 1950s. The Equator Society, I'm going to talk about it uh, in a short while. 10-man group, okay, also I'm going to talk about that. Modern Art Society, Molan Art Association, maybe the least well-known. Um, and in this period, we also have associations, art associations that were formed, okay, uh, that were devoted to a particular teacher, right? So the Molan Art Association uh, was um, actually the students of this um, um, teacher called Si Hyang To, right? He's quite an influential teacher in his own right. And uh, we also have the Pioneer Sculpture Group. Okay, And I'm going to talk about that towards the end of my, my talk. And the Singapore Watercolor Society. Okay, And um, Singapore Watercolor Society formed in 1969. Among the members was actually, uh, founding members was actually Chen Chong Sui. Okay, Chen Chong Sui was one of the founding members. Okay, I'm going to talk about... Um, so you have the Nanyang artists who are very interested in um, the landscape and its people, right? Um, but here again, you have this group of artists who are interested in representing the real. Okay, when I talk about the real here, it means, um, you know, um, the people, the masses, okay, their, their, their working conditions, their poverty, their sufferings and all that, right? Okay, they were painting not so much the reality of the, the southern seas, but the, the reality, the ground reality itself, Okay, the the life of you know everyday people. Okay, so so I'm going to talk about the Equator Art Society that was formed in 1956, and uh, the Equator Art Society promoted uh, social realist art. Okay, and just just to note that there's a difference between social realist and art and socialist realism. Okay, which uh, developed in places like Russia and China. All right and which was uh, used explicitly for the purposes of you know, propagating certain ideologies. Okay? But social realist art also was a kind of art, a style of art, right? There was a realistic style of art that was concerned with depicting the conditions of the people and also questioning the kind of, the, the, you know, the, the kind of um, systems okay, that um, in fact led to these conditions. 
Okay, and so um, members of this society, right, artists belonging to this society, they depicted the, the political kind of um, events that were happening in Singapore in the 19, particularly in the 1950s and also in the 1960s. Okay, the riots, right, strikes, okay, as well as um, struggles of the working classes. And they opposed Western art, right? They opposed Western art because they, they felt that Western art has nothing to do at all with, um, you know, um, their own aims of nation building because um, they were very anti-colonial in their stance, okay? And, uh, they, they, you know, they wanted to, um, you know, they were clamoring, in a sense, for a kind of a, uh, independence from the British. Okay, and woodcut also became a favorite medium. Okay, I'll talk about that, right, in a while. Okay, and this is the uh, Chinese High School Art Association. Okay, and uh, I mean, the words are clear enough, right? What they were standing for. You know, they they were anti-colonial. They were against the British government. They wanted independence, and they wanted their art, all right, to promote patriotism. Okay, and um, and to bring art closer to the masses. So it's very clear in that, you know, in this in this particular quote, what they were standing for. Okay. Um, so, this, this um, I think arguably this is one of the most famous right, paintings in, in uh, Singapore art. You can see it again uh, in, in, the, in the gallery. It's, it's a very well executed painting in oil. Okay? Um, you know, in terms of the details and all that. And of, course, of course, it's painted by one of our most um, uh, notable uh, artists himself, Chuamiati. There's a lot to be said about this painting. I mean, this painting is famous enough that it's been turned into a play and all that, right? Uh, it's been talked uh, talk about quite a bit regarding its, its content, okay? But I don't think I have the time to really go in deep into all that. Okay, on the surface, you know what you see here is a national language class happening. You see a Chegu there. A Chegu is a Malay teacher. Right? Obviously, he's teaching... Um, there's a, 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 you know, he's teaching Malay to the students. And in 1955, right, the Ministry of Culture here, in fact, promoted uh, Malay, right, as the national language, right? Again, that has to do with a kind of, um, it's a political move in a sense that, you know, because uh, of the anticipated union of, you know, Malaysia and Singapore. So Malay, okay, was being promoted as a national language, right? So you see here the Chegu, the Malay teacher, Right, he's teaching a group of students, right? And written on a board is, I think, is the the name here you find is the name of the gallery. Is it the name? No, DBS. Okay. Anyway, it's Siapa Nama Aku, Kamu rather. What is your name? Okay. And where do you live? Okay. Now, if you are attending um an a, a language class, right? Those are the typical basic questions you ask, right? On the surface, that's what we see here, right? You see a Malay teacher. Right? He's teaching Malay to a group of students. If you look at the students, they come, they are from different age groups, different ethnicities, ethnic groups, right? And also in terms of social class as well, in terms of the way they dress, they are quite different. But there's something in, uh, in art that we call interpretation. And that's what makes, it, makes the painting interesting. Okay, meaning to say you look beneath the surface. Okay, to explore a bit more what you call the content of the picture or the iconography. Okay. And of course, to do that, you need you need some to do some research, right? And also to have to have some evidence, right, in what you say. Okay, so knowing that this the year it was painted, 1959, okay, was a year, you know, it was a political significant year as well. I think Singapore gained self-government, if I'm not mistaken. 
right? And also Malay was, as I said, being promoted as a national language, right? And knowing that Chua Miati himself was a member of the Equator Art Society. Okay, so you have all the evidence there and you can make the argument that there's more than a national language class going on here. This painting, if again, you look at what's written on the board, okay, it has to do with, you know, a, a sense of cultural identity and also a sense of place. Okay, I mean, clearly this, this painting, in a way, you know, in a subtle message, right, it was also meant to promote that kind of patriotic feeling or to foster a kind of uh, national identity as well in people. Okay, so you, you can make that argument here, right? So it's not merely a, nat a national language class, right? It is also quite political in its content. And I mentioned that um, um, the woodcut movement was, uh, I mean, the Equator Society also was, many of the members there also practice woodcut, right? Because uh, woodcut really, I think, I think it's a medium that is best used to convey uh, social realist themes, right? As can be seen in this, in this picture, right? I, I think it's because of the nature of the medium, okay? You know, if you look at this, this print itself, okay, the, the costly gouged out areas, the, the jagged lines, okay, um, the, the texture of the wood, all that I, I, I suppose lend a, or convey a certain sense of, uh, you know, emotions or lend a certain sense of emotions to the painting or reinforces the, you know, the emotional content of the painting as does the kind of monochromatic quality of this print. So prints were, were I mean, they, prints were favoured because I suppose they were quite cheap to produce quite, and you can, produ you, know, you can produce them quite quickly as well and distribute them. And they can be disseminated through things like newspapers, magazines, right? I suppose even in the form of leaflets. And um, here, you know, uh, Chu Keng Kwan, who is one of the exponents of the woodcut movement, here he, um, he depicts the, the riot, okay, of 19... It's called the 13 May incident, 1954. Okay, it's sometimes shortened as the 513 incident. Okay, this was a time when uh, students were protesting against the National Service Ordinance around 1954. And because of the protest, the colonial government kind of shelved that, that plan. But here, you know, Chu Keng Kwan was able to, to capture, right? And he's able to, to make the colonial authorities out to be the aggressors and the protesters at the victims. Okay, you see the, um, you know, a policeman here is about to strike, right? Um, you know, a little girl, you know, probably a teenage girl with his baton, all right? And you can see some panic and fear, right? Okay, among the, the protesters. And on the right here, that is the artist himself. Now, why he wanted to insert himself in, I mean, it's not uncommon, right, for artists to insert. Okay, I mean, that, that's again, um, you know, uh, questionable. Is he, was he there actually? Was he there? We are not sure. Okay, um, you know, and, and I have to say that many of the members of the Equators, they are quite reluctant to, you know, to talk about, you know, that, that time, you know, uh, especially the time when they were members of this society. Okay, was he a participant? We are not sure, or he's just a witness. Right to the whole scene. Right, so that's an interesting uh, kind of addition there, where he actually inserted himself into the picture. Okay, I'm going now to the ten man group. Okay, actually it's a misnomer. It's not all men. Okay, there were at least three women in the group, and 
it was not only 10, all right? At their peak, they had 16 members, okay? The 10-man group. And um, this is a, it's a loose grouping of artists. And they, what they did was that uh, they made field trips to the region, okay? I think they made altogether six trips, right? To places like um, Cambodia, Thailand, you know, uh, Brunei. Okay, so I suppose you can um, maybe liken that this, this trip to the, the Bali trip, you know? I mean, they were, they were going to the region also to look for visual sources, for inspiration. Okay, and some of them like Yetuwe, right? He came back, you know, uh, with, you know with artifacts, right? Which uh, serve as a kind of a source for his own paintings, right? If you look at the third point, that's Yetuwe. Yetuwe, in fact, um, uh, he was the organizer of um, these trips, okay? And uh, he was really the, also the defining member, you know, often seen as a defining member of this group of artists. But he was only discovered quite late, you know, when I think uh, the Singapore Museum, or the National Gallery rather, right, uh, had an exhibition of his work, okay? I remember that's one of the, the more, most uh, memorable shows, right, in the, you know, National Gallery, right? That was, I think, some years back. You know, before that show, you know, he was uh, relatively obscure, okay, unfortunately. Uh, you know, and, um, and I think because of that show, he has, you know, received a bit more recognition. Okay, so this is the picture of the, the second trip to Java and Bali. Okay, I'm quickly going on to this work, right? I mean, what you can see here is the, the uniqueness, right, of this work. I mean, immediately you can tell, I mean... And he has developed a unique style, right? And, and I'm, in a sense, glad that he was rediscovered in a way, right? Because he's also an important artist in terms of that, you know, carry on that kind of um, experimentation and innovation. Now, his work has been described as rich, mysterious, and um, rich, heavy, and mysterious. And I think those were quite appropriate words to describe his work, right? Rich, because he draws from different sources in his work. Okay, he draws from Western art. Okay, the figure, you know, the abstraction of the figure, you can see that, you know, there he was influenced by Western art. And he draws or drew from uh, Chinese sources. Okay, look at the, um, the script here. Okay, that's the kind of script you'll find in uh, this Chinese artifacts called Oracle Bones. Right, Oracle Bones. You know, so, so he draws from various sources, you know, or drew from various sources for you know, in, in his works. And also heavy, right? Heavy because if you look at his work, uh, there are some examples in the gallery. You know, it's because of his technique of, of working. He uses a palette knife, okay? And he treats the, a cam his canvas as if like it's stone, you know? Okay, he would kind of, quote unquote, like carve or sculpt his figures, right? So much so there's a kind of um, a, a richness of texture in his work, right? Okay. And, um, and also, thirdly, mystery, right? If you look at his work, there's a kind of mystery. And that mystery, I would say, comes from the black he uses. Now, it was very daring for artists at that time to use black in their work, right? Okay, but, but here, you know, he uses black um, quite effectively. I think, in a sense, he, wants to, he wanted to convey the kind of, um, that, that primitive quality in his work, okay? It's as if, like, you know, sometimes the setting is, you know, is the cave, Okay, and also the black was influenced also by the negative images, right, that were produced, you know, in Chinese ink rubbing, right? Okay, so he was also influenced by that. Okay, but all in all, you know, having said that, you know, in, 
in totality, right? All that kind of combined to form a very unique, distinctive style. Okay, so, you know, certainly I would urge you to, you know, to look at him a bit more, right? Yet away. Now, there's a catalog as well, right? It's, it's, I think it's selling at the bookshop if you're more interest, interested in looking, I mean, knowing more about his work. Okay, and uh, that's what he says there, right? It's a quote by um, Yet Away, right? How he was influenced by woodblock um, printing, stone engraving, okay, um, etc. Okay, this is um, Sia Kim Ju. Now, this is a, a batik, an example of batik, right, painting. Okay, and there were there were a few exponents of batik painting. Chua Tianting is one. He was the one who really popularized it, but Sia Kim Ju was another. Right? And here you can see his uh, virtuosity as a batik painter in terms of conveying textures as well, right? especially the, the patterns on the woman's sarong and all that. Um, it's a monumental work. It's seven meters, right? um, made up of five panels. Okay? And uh, it depicts really the life of the, the people in Malaya. Right? And notice that this was just after independence. Okay, so so there's a artist here who wanted to 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 make this kind of works, right? To 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 convey a sense of you know national identity. You can see people drying salted fish, you know, hunting and all that. And interestingly, if you look on the right panel, the rightmost panel, he has uh, included indigenous prehistoric people. Okay, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, making links between okay the distant past and you know, I mean. You know, telling us that that's, we should not really forget the roots of our, you know, where we come from, right, in a sense. So it's a really interesting painting. And incidentally, this painting was actually, uh, it belongs to the LaSalle collection, right? Not National Gallery. It was actually purchased by Brother Joseph McNally. It used to hang in Hotel Malaysia. Okay, no longer exists now, all right? Um, and also, interestingly, if you have been to that, you have seen this work, notice that is in an awkward position. Actually, it's not, right? It's hung straight. But it's actually, I think, it's the poor soil condition of the city hall wing that causes, uh, you know, the, the floor or something to tilt by one meter. Okay? So if you, maybe if you go again, you'll notice that, okay, it looks slanted, but it's hung the right side up. But it's because of the, you know, the, the flooring of that, that particular space. Okay, I've got to move on very quickly. Um, so this is, um, I'm going on now to the modern art society. Uh, it was formed in 1964 by Ho Ho Ying. And it, I mentioned before, it, it kind of advocated an art for art's sake approach. Okay, doing away with uh, representation, representational art altogether. Okay, and he felt that the social realist works were lack creativity. Okay, because it was more concerned with, uh, you know, making social kind of, statements. So he advocated a different kind of uh, approach towards art making. And this is Ho Ho Ying's own work. You can, I think, can see in the in the gallery as well. Uh, this is an interesting work. It's, it's totally abstract. Okay, it's pure abstraction. Okay, although, although you can see some forms, you know, here. Now it's interesting, I mean, here again you can see, although one can argue that the modern society uh, were influenced by, you know, what was happening in the West. Okay, the abstract developments in the West, you know, by abstract expressionism, by some of the early abstract movements. Okay, you can see that they still appropriated uh, from their Chinese tradition or even their local tradition. Right, and here is, you know, the, the Chinese kind of aesthetics, 
is quite strong here, especially in the use of uh, the line work. Okay, the, the, the spontaneous and the swift lines okay, that's uh, being used uh, for, for this um, dancing forms, right? Okay, that we see, the, the kind of white, rather spectral forms that we see there. And that kind of uh, swift, spontaneous lines, you know, um, gives it a kind of a rhythm, right, as well. And Lim Chong Kiat, you know, says that, you know, of, um, of Ho Ho Ying, that he has arrived, he has an assured control of textures and abstract forms. And, you know, we can see in this painting as well. Okay, and that, those forms, he said, I mean, he said that those check textures form definite elements in his composition, akin in some respects with calligraphy. So I think that kind of calligraphic elements, right, can be also seen in this work. Although in terms of subject, subject itself, it's a, it's a totally abstract work. And talking about Lim Chong Kiat, okay, if you look at the, you know, um, Lim Chong Kiat there, he's the founder of Alpha Gallery. And I think, you know, Eugene will be covering, I think, more about this, uh, you know, gallery in his talk. But Alpha Gallery was very important in the early 70s. Okay, it's where, you know, um, many of these uh, um, exhibitions of uh, the modern art society members were shown. Um, in fact, this is a catalog, the first, this is a catalog of the first show of Alpha Gallery, right? It's interesting, right? It uses the, the logo of Alpha. Alpha is, of course, the first um, alphabet, I mean, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, right? If you look at the participants, participating artists, uh, many of them, you know, most of them, have uh, since become uh, very famous, okay? Two or three have fall, fallen off the radar, but I think most of them have since become, uh, you know, seminal figures in uh, Singapore's art history. Talking about catalog, okay, I have to show you this catalog by Choi Wen Yang, right? I don't see Mr. Choi here today, right? Okay, um, but I, I met him for lunch uh, just uh, on Tuesday, right? And I was telling him, hey, I'm going to show you one of your works, right? In this, in this, uh, in this talk, and he asked me to show one of his paintings. I said, I'm going to show actually one of your designs, okay? Uh, Mr. Choi, you know, he, he himself was uh, very much uh, also influenced by uh, Western uh, painting, right? Notably, abstract expressionism, because he spent quite a bit of time in the UK and also in the US, right? Where he encountered abstract expressionism. And, but he's also, he's a pivotal figure, right? Uh, in the development of art during this period. Right, in his role as critic, as writer, as curator, and also as artist. Right? He was a curator of the newly formed uh, National Museum Art Gallery in the 1970s. Right? And I mean, you know, he's quite a character. I mean, Mr. Choi, is, he's a mindful of information. Right? He's already in his 80s, but you know, he has some very interesting stories to share if you, you, know, if you uh, happen to you know, talk to him. He designed a lot of catalogs at that time. And he was telling me to tell all of you that, you know, he says that, you know, this, the covers of these catalogs, right, were done, he had no formal training in graphic design, okay? So he did it with a kind of artist, kind of sensibility, artist aesthetic. But I show you this and you can see that, you know, the, the prevailing kind of um, art practices at that time, again, was abstract art. And this work is, you know, he has broken down everything down to just simple shapes and colors. And he has designed quite a number of these catalogs, free of charge, right? Okay, for various exhibitions. Okay, um, also I'll just move on, show you a couple of works by the second generation artists. Again, it could be a misleading label. Okay, because second generation artists, second generation of what, right? Okay, so um, uh, some 
I mean, those who gave the label say that they were, well, students of the first generation of artists. I think that's where the kind of commonality ends, you know. They were just teachers. I mean, most of them were, were, were students of, you know, the Nanyang artists, right, at Nafa. Okay, but after that, they were very different. They went on to study in the West, and they brought back that kind of um, internationalism that they encountered in the West, you know, abstract art, right, which influenced their work. Okay, so maybe it's, it's again a misleading label to call them a second-generation artist. But I think what, what they shared with their teachers, okay, was this um, spirit of, or this desire to experiment and to innovate in their work, right? Okay, I'm quickly showing you this. Anthony Poon, okay, one of the most well-known of this uh, group of artists, right, who uses a kind of a modern language, right, in his art. Um, I mean, his work can be characterized as really art for art's sake, okay? And he was influenced by, uh, you know, movements like the geometric abstraction and, uh, you know, um, op, op art, right, okay, in the West. And um, this work is a combination of his uh, series of paintings, right, his wave series. So you can see some wave motifs over there, right? And also his color theory series, Okay, in which he explored, as, uh, you know, the, the chromatic kind of, um, you know, ranges, or, you know, in his work, right? Okay, so you see here, you know, he, there, there are no brush strokes, no textures, right? Those have been complete, completely eliminated, right? It's an optically kind of challenging, interesting work, right? Uh, where he combined uh, various uh, linear elements as well as, uh, you know, um, what gives... I mean, the title itself, CR is uh, referring to cadmium red, right? A type of pigment. Okay, so, so here, you know, you can see that um, Poon himself was very interested just in the formal aspects of the work, All right? He himself says that everything can be simplified in the basic shapes of lines and angles. Okay, that's a quote by Anthony Poon. Tio Ying Seng uh, is another member, right, of, of this group of artists who practiced in the 1960s or em who emerged in the 1960s. Okay, and um, I don't know whether you followed the Sungai Road, you know, when it was closing. And Ying Seng was, uh, he was one of the, what you call the Karangoni uncles, you know. Okay, he did the performance there and all that. Okay, it's quite a character, right? You meet him in person. He's daring, he's, he's critical, okay. But in his art, he was, he was very experimental. Right, and I think something he which he did was which was never done by any other artist, which was uh, what he called paper dice cup. And it was during his stint as a teacher in uh, United World College where he learned to make paper from one of his Japanese students. Okay, and then he kind of developed this into you know a, a particular technique of making paper. Okay, and manipulated the pulp, and and then he manipulated the pulp by adding color texture form to create highly pictorial images and images like this. I mean, there, there is some content over here. You know, you can see some Chinese folk prints, you know, representing good luck. Okay, some drawings of horses, you know, of, of this referring, alluding to the Chinese saying of the honorable gentleman or horse. And, but I think leaving all that narrative content aside, okay, I think what's um, interesting here is just his formal, uh, the formal aspect of the work. Okay, you look at the, this work itself, you know. Again, how he's able to possess the pulp and, you know, manipulated it, right? So much so that, you know, um, he has blurred the boundaries. He has blurred the boundaries between two-dimensional and three-dimensional work. 
Okay, and uh, you know, so so that's what what you know his his contribution I would say to you know, uh, to Singapore art, right? Okay, and as far as I know, you know, no one has really done you know kind of you know copied his style and and you know, um, done works using this kind of technique, right? Okay, this is from his Autosso series. It's an abbreviation from for on the other side of silence, right? It's a kind of um, giving visual form to his personal struggles. Okay. Um, lastly, Pat, you can allow me another 10 minutes, right? I promise to kind of finish. Okay, I have to um, really talk about this, right? Because Pat personally requested me to. Because it's been a kind of um, a personal research of mine, okay? For a long time. Okay, and it's on sculpture. Okay, and when um, the, the, the time when I undertook this research, right, there's, there's not much been written about it. And I remember talking to Brother Joseph, who was, um, of course, I've been teaching in LaSalle for close to, what, 20 years. And, you know, uh, you know I, when I joined, you know, um, Brother Joseph was, um, he just, I think, was about to step down as president, right? And he passed away in 20, 2000 and, um, 2001, I think, right, or two. Okay. And really, it was through my conversation with him that my kind of interest in this uh, area was ignited. Okay, and um, and there was not much written about sculpture at that point in time. Okay, so um, now before I give you a quiz, anyone knows who the artist of the Merlion is? Sorry, I'm not looking at your handphones, please. All right, no one. I'm surprised. Eh? Lim Nang Seng. Sometimes spell your G, yeah, Nang Seng. Hmm, I'm quite surprised. <laughs> okay. Uh, all of us kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it's the butt of jokes, right? The Merlion, you know? It's an overworked tourist symbol, you know? Right? It's money-making for the tourist industry, things like that, right? But we, we never kind of see it as a, a piece of sculpture. Uh, before that, you know, it was another person who came out with the design, right? And it was to serve as the logo of the Sing then STPB, Singapore Tourist Promotion Board, right? Okay, and then the 72 itself, Lim Nan Singh was commissioned. Right to make this sculpture, it's about eight point six meters, and believe it or not, it's seventy tons. Yeah, right. It's made mainly of cement fondue, okay. But here for the scales and all that, the body, he actually used porcelain plates. You never get near enough to see it, right? And then for the eyes, you use teacups and all that, okay. So it's an interesting mix of materials, okay. Um, if you were to read uh, Lim Lan Singh's uh, interview. Right, uh, you know, he was really saying that he built this, he constructed this work, you know, through blood, sweat, and tears. You know, I mean, he got swindled by some contractors and all that. Right, it's it's really a a labor of love, okay. And uh, you know, and over the years, he has uh, grown attached as well to this sculpture, right? Okay, so I I suppose we have to see it for what it is, right? It's a it's a piece of uh, sculpture done at that time by the most famous sculptor at that time, Lim Nan Singh. Right? That's why the you know he was commissioned to do this sculpture. Just just very briefly before I just quickly go through the list of uh, sculptors. Now the thing is that in, when you look at in Singapore art itself, right, there was a vibrant sculpture scene before the war, twenties, thirties, forties, rather twenties and thirties before the war, right, where a lot of uh, migrant uh, expat artists came here, right, Dora Godin you know, the Russian artist, Carl Duldig. And you can see it as you go into the Singapore gallery, there's a group of sculptures there. They were done by this group of expat sculptors. 
Okay. But um, although they had, some of them had students, but they never passed down their influence to any of the local sculptors here. So when the war broke out, things stopped. I mean, sculpture totally stopped. You know, um, Nafa didn't even offer a sculpture course, right? And then it was only in the, in the I mean, the only person that was probably practicing or making sculptures at that time was uh, Ng Ting, right? Seriously making sculptures. Okay. Now the rest, I mean, people like Chong Su Ping and some of the, the Equator Art Society artists, they did make sculptures, but sculptures were secondary to their practice. Okay. They were probably making it just for fun and all that. You know, not, not really. I mean, painting was their kind of primary concern, not, not sculpture. Right? So sculpture had always been marginalized in Singapore's art history, right? In, in the art discourse here. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, it was never taught. I mean, Nafa didn't really have a sculpture course after the war. Right, so you know, people who wanted to learn sculpture didn't have the chance. You know, of course, another problem is the lack of facilities and all that. The bronze, bronze foundry, okay, there was not a bronze foundry here. So, okay, and um, also Singapore being a small country, there was not much space to display sculpture, right? So all this worked against the practice of sculpture, right, in Singapore. Now, if you call the Nanyang artist the pioneer. Artists, right? They often, they also sometimes referred to as pioneer artists. But if you look at Brother Joseph's quote, right, he's asking, why was he not declared a pioneer artist? Who was a he is referring to? Is Yo Hui Bin? I'm coming to it uh, in a while. Is it too late? I mean, okay, I mean, what he's trying to say is that yes, we have, um, you know, marginalized these artists, right? To the extent we only celebrate painters in Singapore, but not sculptors. Right. Although these sculptors have done really, uh, you know, very uh, uh, exciting and interesting work, right? And the the names you see there, right? Those are the names of the well, well, you can term the pioneer sculptors, the local pioneer sculptors, right? I told you about the expat sculptors who came here, but these really were the are the local pioneer sculptors, not not people like uh, Han Sai Po and you know. In fact, they came later, right? Okay, these people came before, before them. Okay, so this was a momentous occasion. In 1967, the first sculpture show was shown in the then National Library. Right? And seven artists participated. Okay, I gave you the names earlier on. Right? Out of these seven artists, only two, I, I would say, are pure sculptors. Right? Uh, or three of them were pure sculptors. Yo Hui Bin, Vincent Hoisington, Right, and Lim Nan Seng. Okay, Chong Su Ping, of course, you know, you know Chong Su Ping, right? He did mainly uh, um, paintings, but he did some very uh, innovative sculptures as well, right? Mainly relief sculptures. Lim Yu Kuan and all that, they were primarily painters. And Ying Teng and Ao Ying Kuang, they're quite, it's quite interesting because they were trained as ceramicists. Okay, so if you look at some of their sculptures, you know, he has a kind of um, ceramic, kind of, um, Ceramicist kind of sensibility as well that they put in, you know, like Ying Teng, his pot bellied, you know, he will have, um, you know, works with, with the pot bellied shapes of his uh, sculptures and all that were an influence from, you know, uh, his ceramic training. So 1967, they held their first show with 117 works. Those are a lot of works, right? Okay, so, you know, um, and I think it was so successful that in uh, two years later, in 1969, they held, the same seven artists held a second show at the Victoria Memorial Hall, right? And this is a photograph of that exhibition. Okay, so if you just take a look at this photo, you'll notice that, 
you know, there are many different types of works here. Abstract, figurative, life science, you know, small-scale works. Okay, and, um, you know, so so those, so this, um, I would say this 67 and 69 shows, right, they were really um, a catalyst, right, um, you know, for, for the sculpture scene that was to really emerge, all right, in the 1970s. Okay, I'll talk about this as I go along, right? Each of them have their own different kind of um, uh, styles, you know, right? And I'm just going to just go through. Okay, just bear with me. I have only about seven slides to go, right? Uh, this is uh, Yo Hui Bin. Okay, um, and uh, last time I had a, had, a, had a kind of exhibition of Yo Hui Bin, I think some more than a decade ago, right, in, in La Salle itself, okay, when he was still alive. And... He taught for, he was a long-time teacher at Chuncheng High School. Okay, and of course, one of his most famous students is uh, visually impaired artist, Cheng Siok Ting, right? So, this is uh, one of his famous students. Um, and, you know, just looking at the sculptures here, you find that he's a very versatile artist, right? He could work in a variety of styles. And I think you're quite surprised to look at the sculpture of Lee Kuan Yew here. Right, okay. Um, that's a long story. In fact, I got you know I got to know more about his work through my kind of friendship with his son, right? And I went to interview uh, you know him and also his brother, and uh, got to see some of the sculptures in 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 their homes. Okay. And um, you know that that bust of Lee Kuan Yew was actually commissioned by the PAP, right? one of the members of the PAP, if I'm not mistaken, right? And then. Um, they later cast uh, two bronze. There are two bronze casts of this. The original one is made of pl uh, plaster of Paris. Okay, and um, now this is a very innovative work where you actually use found objects. Okay, uh, many of them are like just kitchen utensils. Okay, that he actually used to compose this right. This kind. This uh, this particular work. This metal relief work. He was also part of the ten man group. Okay, you we've been so he traveled with them. So if you can look at the 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 Balinese. You know, maiden bathing. Okay, that was probably a result of his trip, okay, to uh, to the to the region, right? So very versatile artist who could work with a variety of materials as, as well as styles. And uh, Lim Nan Singh. Now Lim Nan Singh has a unique kind of di distinction of being probably the only artist who who made animals. Anyone could think of other artists. I mean, the merlion is also a kind of animal, right? Okay, half fish and half yeah, half fish, half lion, right? Okay, so he specialized in making that. And, um, and uh, in particular, uh, the water buffalo, okay, featured quite prominently in his work, right? Uh, in the gallery, you'll see the goat, uh, adult goat and a calf, right? This is quite an interesting uh, uh, sculpture as well, right? So here you see, right, um, depiction of uh, goats here. And his uh, animal sculptures were very popular, right? As he was telling uh, the interviewer that, you know, um, you know, they were quite popular, especially, I think, with, with tourists. So, and this work here is still in existence, in case you want to see it. It's a site-specific work. Right? In fact, I was searching for a long time for this work until I got a call one day from this guy from URA who also happened to be part of the residence committee. In, in, he knew I was um, doing research on sculpture and he, he asked me whether I wanted to see this work. And I said, wow, you know, of course. So I went there, it's in Tiongbaru Garden. You know, it's called Singpo Garden or something. Right, it's there. It's still there. If you want to see it, I think it's not far from the market, right? And it's there in one corner, okay. But long-time residents will know it, 
okay, I think probably they become quite attached to it. Okay, because when it was first um, made and shown, it was, uh, it was in fact, there was quite a bit of fan, fanfare surrounding it. I think it was commissioned by MP, if I'm not mistaken. And there was, uh, there was an opening, and the opening was graced by a minister. So it was quite a big thing, right? But when it first came out, people were wondering what it looks like, you know? So many of them wanted to see it as a swan. You know why swan? Because it's, it's an auspicious symbol, right? In, as you know, in Chinese, you know, um, yeah, in Chinese culture, right? And um, they wanted this, or at least they wanted to see this sculpture as a kind of you know, bringing wealth, right, to the estate. And some children actually interpret this work as a shrimp, you know, like shrimp, right? Okay. But actually, if you look carefully, it's, it's a kind of a semi-abstract sculpture. It actually shows a figure dancing, right? Actually, this, what you see here, he's actually influenced by the concept of a, of a fan, right? It's actually a raised leg, okay? But, you know, done in a, in a, in a you know, as kind of an open fan to convey movement in the work, right? So it's an interesting work. I mean, it's still there if you want to, right, to view it. Okay, just a, a few more to go, sorry. And um, this uh, uh, work by Vincent Hoisington. Now, he died very young. I think he was only in his 30s, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Um, and he's quite a character, right? Quite a character, I was told. And, uh, you know, he was always in demand, right? So, you know, when you were living in Singapore in the 60s, I suppose, right? Uh, or early 70s, you'll see his work all around Singapore, you know, like in Robinson's, in John Little's, in Cathay Organization, A&W Restaurant. And he specialized in making these kinds of metal relief, okay, that you see here. Okay, and the metal reliefs are made by using aluminium, right? So he would join large sheets of steel and aluminium together to form these kinds of relief. Okay, totally kind of innovative for his time. Okay, because there was no one who was working purely with metal. Okay, but Hoisington worked purely with metal. I mean, he, some people have called him an interior decorator and, and a craft, craftsman and all. I think that's totally, uh, you, know, um, um, you know, disrespectful to what he was doing. He was working with a kind of a modern artist sensibility. Okay, so a very unique artist indeed. I mean, you know, Vincent Hoisington. Okay, and he worked a lot also for hotels and um, the one you see there is, um, is York Hotel that he made for York Hotel. Okay, the last uh, artist, uh, sculptor I'm going to highlight, of course, is the most prolific and arguably the most famous sculptor, right? Uh, the late Ng Ting. Ng Ting, um, he again, you know, he, he worked with a variety of materials. And he, the thing is that he was able to treat his materials with the utmost respect and rigor. And... Uh, also, uh, in terms of his subject matter, okay, the family played a very important role in his work. Why the family? Okay, to him, he had, a, he had a lot of kinship with his family, his parents, his brothers and sisters. Okay, so it's not surprising that the mother and child series and later on the father and child okay, became the important subject matter in his work. And secondly, he was also influenced by the British art, uh, sculptor Henry Moore. Okay, Henry Moore also started his uh, family series, I think, uh, I think in the 50s and the, the 60s as well. And the thing with Ng Teng is this, is that if you look at his works, right, there's always this kind of sense of humor, kind of quirkiness, right? Okay, um, and, and the expression is always very unconventional and also whimsical, 
right? Although he deals with very serious subjects like you know, family relationships. Okay, and you can see in this, in this sculpture here. This is called responsibility too. Um, you'll notice um, you see a father and his son here. I mean, it can easily be called chip off the old block, you know, because they look very similar, right? But uh, I suppose in this work, what is uh, distinctive here are the hands. You know, the hands are severed from the body. And you can see that the hands are used to offer a kind of protection and also to steady, you know, the, the boy, you know, to, to hold the boy so that he will not fall. Okay, so that speaks a lot about the responsibility of, you know, the father to the son. Okay, but, you know, in a sense, interpreted in a rather whimsical manner. And of course, this, finally, this work. Are you all old enough like me to remember this work? <laughs> okay, it was in Plaza Singapura. Okay, and if you go to Plaza Singapura in the 1970s, in the late 70s, you, you know, you come come across uh, this work and I think it was very popular with photographers at that time. Okay, and it, they, they come in a, as a pair, right? Wealth and contentment. And they look uh, almost alike, right? I mean, with, with some subtle variations, right? But they are in a position of resting, you know? I don't know why. You know, too much money, maybe contented, you know? Or something like that. Okay, but I suppose the, the name itself, wealth, it was uh, commissioned by DBS Land. And then when Plaza Singapura was renovated in 1997, these sculptures were then donated to, the, to, the, to NUS, where it is now. I mean, that's really a pity because nobody goes to NUS except the students, you know. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they, I would have, uh, one, you know, it would have been best if they left it there because sculptures are meant to be site-specific. You know, they're not meant to be moved here and there, right? Okay, and... Um, so, you know, many of us will not get to see unless you go to NUS. Um, again, you know, if you look at the figure here, he, he shows, um, again, you can see the kind of, his, his training from ceramics, right? The bubbles kind of, you know, uh, uh, shape of the figure and all that. And these figures were made from cement fondue. Now, cement fondue was a favorite material of Ying Ting. It was an it's an industrial material, but it allows Ying Ting to realize his potential as a sculptor. It's an easily worked material. I mean, um, you know, it, it can be made hollow. In fact, it's uh, much lighter than bronze. Okay? It can be easily repaired when broken. You can stain it with many colors. So cement fondue was really a favorite material of Ying Ting. Okay, and it was a very popular material in the 19, um, you know, 60s and 1970s as well. Okay, Pat, if you allow me just uh, to conclude, I need to show you just, just these two works, right? About the Singapore River. These two works are... Sing about Singapore River, but very different. And this painting is by um, Lim Cheng Ho. Now, there's a bit of debate as to, you know, who the better watercolorist is. I, do, I don't want to get into this debate. <laughs> okay, it's always either Lim Cheng Ho or Ong Kim Singh, okay? But anyway, okay? Or Yong Man Singh, you know? We, we can't forget Yong Man Singh as well, right? Okay, so, you know, and... Um, but anyway, uh, this is Lim Cheng Ho's kind of... And... The Singapore River became a very popular subject in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, and members of the Singapore Watercolor Society uh, will go there every Sunday, set an easel, and paint the Singapore River. And then it's interesting that they'll get their fellow members to, you know, to evaluate each other's work and all that. Okay, so that's what they did. And because to them, the Singapore River is, I suppose, not only a national symbol, because at that time, Singapore already gained independence, you know. And Singapore River became an important national symbol. It also has to do a lot of history, you know, immigrants landed there, 
you know, it was a, a, a focus of economic activity and things like that. But it was also picturesque, right? It was also, so I think that attracted the, you know, artists there. Okay, so Lim Cheng Ho did a very nice painting. Okay, uh, you know, uh, not really depicting the hustle and bustle of the Singapore reserve, but rather depicting it as very quiet and very tranquil. Okay, and I like his technique of wet on wet method. Okay, which gives a kind of watery feel to the whole painting and being able to capture the glowing light as well. Okay, so so it's a, a very, you can, I think you can see in the gallery. So it's a very nice picture. Last slide. I, I think this is a good transition, okay, um, or a good way to, to end this whole uh, lecture. The Singapore River. Okay, this is the Singapore River. Okay, now what happened here? The date, all right, actually, it, it says like 2006. 2006 is, was when this particular iteration was made. Okay, but, but the original idea was actually formed in 1972. Because Cho Chai Hyang was a student then, okay? He submitted a specific set of instructions in the form of a letter to Ho Ho Ying and the Modern Art Society, right? He submitted this work for an exhibition and he entitled it Singapore River. So it, in that letter, he told them, well, you just need to, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, draw lines five by five inches, straddling the wall and the floor, okay? And um, yeah, and then, you know, you, you call it Singapore River. And of course, you know, Ho Ho Ying, I, I don't know what his reaction was, but I think he was rather taken aback. Okay, I mean, you know, um, and he, I think he, in his letter to, to um, his response uh, to Cho Cha Hyang, he was, he was quite polite. He was not, you know, he tried to explain to Cho Cha Hyang about, you know, so he went to all this thing about art and what is art, you know, and he says that art must be, uh, you know, it must be communicative, you know, it must resonate with the audience, you know, and, and such a work would not serve that purpose, you know. You must possess some unique characteristics and things like that, right? So that was that. And, but Cho Chai Hyang, this was a reaction against what was happening at that time, okay, to all the artists who were painting the Singapore River. He didn't want to paint another Singapore River. In fact, there were a few other artists who reacted later on. Okay, there's one exhibition called Not the Singapore River, all right? So you have... You know, so people were kind of tired about this cliched representation of the Singapore River. So, there, I mean, there were many iterations. This is one iteration, there's another one, and of course in the gallery, right, you can see Yo Ying Seng. Yo Ying Seng, so it's another, that's the, most definitely the Singapore River, okay? That's another work, uh, using paper dice cup. Okay? But I think this work is there as well, right? Uh, Cho Cha Yang's work, you can see, yes, right, yes, you can see, I mean, it's just... I don't know, right? I mean, you can, you can spark off another debate about what art is and all that, right? Okay. But I think it's a good way to end um, because it provides a transition. This was done in 1972. It's a piece of conceptual art or installation art. So, um, you know, in, in um, uh, last, last year, I published a book together with Eugene, right? It's a, a reader, actually. It's a, it's a compilation of writings on Singapore contemporary art. It's called Histories, Practices, Interventions. Okay, actually, you can get it at the bookshop and all that. I'm trying to, I do a lot of selling today, right? My course, my book, and all that. Okay. Uh, anyway, the letter to, the letter to Ho Ho, um, to Cho Cha Hyang by Ho Ho Ying is actually included in our book, right? You can read um, the letter there. Right? But I think it's a good, it's a good transition because it's an example of conceptual art. So this is often seen as a, what you call the conceptual moment or turn in Singapore art history. 
And it would be another two decades or so in the late 80s, okay, that, that artists like, or groups like the Artist Village, okay, would take conceptual art to another level. Okay, but I think that's really for another lecture, right? So I'd like to thank you for your patience, right? Went over time a bit, right? Okay, thank you. If there's any questions, I, I'm uh, kind of free to, yeah, to entertain, uh, you know. Just now you show a slide on uh, works by uh, Lim Lam Singh. Yes. There's, the, there's a goat next to the swamp. Uh, to, uh, I think the goats are... Uh, uh, are they still available for public viewing? This, this uh, particular goats, they belong to NUS Museum. Okay, so as far as I know, NUS Museum, uh, they, uh, they, don't, they don't display them. So okay. you might have to, um, maybe if you want to see it, you can make a special request. All right? Thank you. Yeah, to uh, NUS Museum. Yes. Um, throughout this period, are there non-Chinese Singaporean artists that are quite prominent and pivotal in the history of art in Singapore? Yes. Uh, I, I think, again, you know, not, you know, I mean, uh, sadly, there's not been much research, but I think it's a very important question, right? Uh, you know, because when you look at the Nanyang artists, they're all Chinese, right? Okay, so there's also a question of whether we can extend that kind of definition to, you know, to, to Malay artists. And were there Malay artists practicing or, or artists of other ethnic groups like Malays or Indians practicing at that time? I think that there were, right? Uh, but the only problem is that it's uh, not uh, well documented, right? Um, you know, you have the Society of Malay Artists. Okay, I think they were formed in the 1930s. And there was also a Society of uh, Indian Artists, right? Okay, but how many of, of us know, you know, of, of any Indian artists? Okay, there was one uh, uh, Indian sculptor, right, called uh, A. Gunaratnam. I mean, she was very, uh, technically very uh, efficient. Okay, she used to teach at Raffles uh, Institution, right, but not much has been written about, about this artist. And then it was only in the 1970s that this, uh, I think, Malay artists began, a group of Malay artists began to emerge, like uh, Sakasi Syed, uh, Jaffa Latif. And they were mainly uh, artists working with the batik, right, uh, medium, right? Okay, so as far as I know, um, and then of course you have Iskandar Jalil. I think, but Iskandar Jalil also emerged in um, really the the eighties. I would say right, seventies, eighties. Okay, yeah, but in the fifties and the sixties, um, not yeah, not not many. I I think I'm I'm not sure why. You know, I mean, again, it, it could be due to the way we write about art history again, right? Okay, that uh, tend tend to kind of. I don't know, privilege certain artists over another, right? Okay, and also there was an association of artists of various resources called APAD, A-P-A-D. I can't remember when APAD is formed, but I think it's much later. Yeah, much later, right? Yeah. Hope that answers the question. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>